Amen. It's a blessing to see some new faces in the choir as well, to be able to celebrate who Christ is. And it is a blessing to be able to share with you this morning, uh, even some of the songs. I knew that some of our normal folks from the worship team were not going to be here, and um, I gave some input on a couple of the songs. I will tell you, probably one of my favorite hymns ever written was, I don't even know if it's really a hymn or if it's just a old gospel song, but I'll fly away. Uh, That's the reason that one was in there, just because I liked it. Uh, So that's the advantage of being a pastor. Sometimes you can pull strings. So um, before I get into my message today, uh, let me just say that I realized that today's message would be considered hate speech depending on uh, where you are. In fact, even in Canada today, if I were to share this message, I run the risk of actually being arrested for saying some of the things that I will share with you today. Uh, perhaps there are even those who are here in this service who might not like some of the things that I would say, and you might even assume that it is hateful. Um, but I want you to know that What I'm going to share with you today is in no way an expression of hate, but one of love. Love on the part of God and even love on the part of myself. Our God is all about redemption, but a part of the heart for redemption means that God cannot just ignore brokenness in his people. Do you remember when Adam and Eve committed sin in the Garden of Eden? Curiously, God doesn't immediately evict them from the garden. We automatically assume that as soon as they uh, ate of that fruit that they were kicked out, but actually a conversation takes place. It's not out of anger or disappointment. He evicts them from the garden lest they eat from the tree of life and then live forever trapped in their sins. Now, they had likely eaten from the tree of life on many occasions before. But now that sin was present, it would create a problem for them to be able to live forever in the midst of their sin. In the same way, God looks upon us and he offers us the gift of eternal life. But he does not long for us to live in eternity still enslaved by the sin that cost his son his own life. That would be an eternity of defeat and it's not what God created us for. So please, as I share this morning, receive this message with grace. As many of you know, this past Sunday, we held a funeral here for one of the saints of the church, Reverend Willett Vess. He was a longtime evangelist and minister of the gospel, beginning his ministry all the way back in 1950. Just to do the math, that was 22 years before I was even born. And while there is certainly a void in many of our lives today when someone like Willet Vess is taken from us, I also confess that it is an incredible blessing. There's no doubt that Reverend Vess was ready for eternity. Well, he was an incredibly strong individual in this life. Even in the months leading up to his death, his strength was on full display. He came home from the hospital a few months ago and was given only a couple days to live. The family began to make funeral preparations, but Willet Vest was not ready to die. He would beat the doctor's estimates, but he didn't just lay around waiting to die. He continued to live. He worked out in his shed. 
He rode around on his scooter. He talked with other people. He prayed with other people. And he worked to develop a more intimate relationship with God in those last several months. One of the things that stood out to me was in regard to the message that he had preached for so many, many years. He recently shared with his wife, Mary Nell, that everything that he had preached, that he had discovered, it was all true. He said that he knew that God truly had been faithful, that God always provided for every one of his needs, that God was providing him peace and strength even as he walked this journey. Everything that he had preached about was true. As I think about Willard, it begs the question, if you knew you only had a short time to live, whether it be a couple days, a couple weeks, or a couple months, what would you do with your time? What would you live for? A couple weeks ago, I had a spot that was removed from my nose. I don't know if you can see it from there, but it's, it's right here. They did a biopsy, and the tests came back this week positive that it was cancer. Now, I realize that skin cancer, when addressed in a timely manner, has a very low mortality rate. In other words, I'm not expecting to die from this. But the mere mention of the word cancer immediately causes fear in every one of us. It's a natural thing because most of us know of someone who has died because of cancer. In my, question, in my case, the question arose, if this were a death sentence, what would be the most important things to take care of? What matters most to me? And I'm going to tell you that the thing that matters most to me is to make sure that my heart is ready so that when the day that God calls me home, I will be prepared to go. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 in many ways answers this question for all of us, beginning in verse 9. Now you see in your bulletins, it actually says verses 9 through 20. I'm just going to tell you on the front end, I'm not going to get through all the verses. We're going to focus specifically on the first three verses, but I encourage you to read verses 12 through 20 as well. This is what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 9. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. On two occasions in those three verses, it references what we will inherit or what we will not inherit talks about individuals who are living in their sin, and it says, do you not know that these individuals will not inherit the kingdom of God? It goes back to this idea that God never intended for us to remain in our sin for all eternity. He wants us to leave that sin behind. The thing that matters most to me is whether I will inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, there are all of these other things that may bring me great pleasure in this life. But if they could keep me from 
inheriting the kingdom of God, then perhaps I shouldn't be doing those things. Mark 8.36 connects with this as Jesus asks, What shall it profit a man if he should gain the whole world yet lose his own soul? Now maybe you wonder, I thought salvation was about grace, not just keeping a list of do's and don'ts. I would agree with that. But you should also know that what you do does matter. God didn't redeem you just so you could continue in the same sins and be enslaved in them for the rest of your lives. And Revelation tells us that nothing impure will ever enter into the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. That means that God is not okay with us continuing in our sin. The passage shares a brief list of some of the sins that apparently existed in the Corinthian church with Paul sharing that the consequences of such sinful lifestyles would be not inheriting the kingdom of God. Now, every sin on this list is about selfishness. As you look at that list, consider which one of them is not about selfishness. In fact, it could be argued that every sin ever committed is in some way connected with selfishness. That's why when Jesus was asked about the greatest commandment, He simply identified a need for us to love God and to have a love for others. He doesn't tell us to love ourselves more because he knows that the fact is we already think about ourselves quite often. You see, often it is when we have too much love for ourselves that we find ourselves in trouble. The passage here identifies multiple sins that are certainly worthy of discussion. I will touch briefly on a couple of these, and then I'll focus on the one that seems to be repeated multiple times here in the passage. It's interesting that idolaters, thieves, greedy, drunkards, slanderers, swindlers, they're all included together. Part of what makes it interesting is that we have almost determined a weight for sin, as if some sins are more significant than others. For example, culture says that the abuse of alcohol is somewhat acceptable, yet nobody wants to be known as a thief. And slander means to testify falsely against another individual, thereby damaging their character or reputation. Two weeks ago, I talked about politics. Do you think any slander takes place in politics? But for some reason, we're okay with the fact that it happens. It actually happens on both sides of the political aisle, by the way. But clearly, all of these sins are grouped together because they carry the same consequences. That means that if you live a life enslaved by alcohol, the drunkard, then you're no better or worse than the guy who's out there taking advantage of a little old lady. If all you ever do is lie about somebody else to make yourself look better, you're no different than an idolater. Maybe society says you're different, but God's word says it's the same. They carry the same consequence. In fact, this principle carries over to the sin of sexual immorality that is mentioned multiple times here in this passage. Again, we're still talking about people who will not inherit the kingdom of God. And on three occasions, he addresses sexuality. 
First, he mentions the sexually immoral, then the adulterer, and finally those who practice homosexuality. Again, culturally, we have minimized all of these things, yet the scriptures seem to indicate that they all carry the same consequences. Not that long ago, I met with a couple specifically talking about marriage, and uh, they were sharing that they are looking at the possibility of getting married. They've, each of them already have multiple kids, but when asked why they haven't got married, their response is, well, we really believe that marriage is something to be valued. It's something that we need to be committed to. And I have no disagreement with that. My problem is that they have chosen to live without it, yet still benefit from the things that should happen within the marriage for a long time. You see, the reality is we know that God has certain expectations that he places on us. And this ought to be something that is very clear as we read in God's word. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3 through 7 addresses this. It says, it is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. That in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. The point is that sexual immorality is a big deal. Even if our society minimizes it and we justify why it's okay to have sex outside of marriage, why it's okay to have a relationship that is ungodly, why it's okay for us to look at things that drive our sexual thoughts all the time. Sexual purity is something that God expects of us. It is identified here as being contrary to those who are set apart for God's glory. It's also identified as a self-control issue, only acting out of selfishness, taking advantage of a brother or a sister. And in this passage in Thessalonians, it promises punishment from God. The passage we're using primarily today in 1 Corinthians 6, it says that you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Going back to this original passage, we see that sexual immorality is fairly well defined on at least two occasions in this passage. First, it talks about the adulterer. Sex was created as something that is very, very good. I understand that in some ways the world has portrayed sexual activity as something that is evil. That is simply not true. God created sex as a blessing. God could have made sexual intercourse something that is boring, that we do just for the sake of procreation, but he didn't. He made it awesome. As one who's married, I can say that. But from the very beginning, God made sex something to be enjoyed between a husband and a wife. What that means is that sex outside of the confines of marriage is a perversion of the good gift that God gave to us. Now, what would that mean? The obvious answer here is that once you're married, you stay faithful to your spouse. 
According to Jesus in Matthew 5, 27 and 28, this even includes the lustful, flirtatious behavior that we've often justified. It's not that big a deal. We're just flirting with each other. But it's more than that. This also relates to the time prior to your marriage. You may assume that you're going to get married anyways, but you wouldn't be the first one to be wrong about that. And in both of these cases, whether we're talking about premarital sexuality or extramarital sexuality, the root is still selfishness. I've heard people say, but, but, but pastor, you don't understand, we really do love each other. Listen to me, I'm going to say this the nicest way possible. Please don't be offended. That is a load of poop. You see, the reality is sexual activity outside of marriage is not an expression of love. It is an expression of selfishness. You say, oh, no, pastor, you don't understand. No, I do. Because the consequences that can come with that are not something that comes out of love. Often, families are destroyed. Often, careers are destroyed. The future of an individual who's going to college and now they have to drop out because of it, they experience incredible hurt. You say, but, but we both love each other and it's okay. Stop, you're lying to yourself. The truth is you want the sexual pleasure that comes with it. And that's the reason why you're doing it. Stop trying to excuse it away because of an emotion that has taken place. Young adult, male, if you truly loved her, then you wouldn't sacrifice her potential future for your own personal moment of pleasure. Young adult, female, if you truly loved him, then you wouldn't sacrifice his potential future for your selfish pleasure or to, sanctify or to, uh, to satisfy your insecurities. Husband, wife, if you truly love the person that you're not married to, then run. You don't have any business playing with something that can hurt you and them in the process. Be like Old Testament Joseph, who was tempted by Potiphar's wife. In his case, he didn't just sit there and reason with her why this isn't really a good idea. He didn't flirt back with her. He didn't play around in his mind justifying about how much fun this would be. And he's in an unfair situation to begin with. Instead, he ran. So run. Get away from the temptation that is there. That passage in 1 Thessalonians talked about learning to control your body. Well, that begins with learning to control your thoughts. How do you do that? Listen, every day you either feed your pursuit of God or you feed your pursuit of personal pleasure. You do that by choosing what you will put into your mind. So listen to some alarming statistics regarding the church. According to Ed Stetzer, only 19% of those who attend church regularly Read the Bible on a daily basis. That's not only 19% of Christians. I'm talking about the entire 
body that shows up to church on a regular basis. I'm not sure what they define regular as in this particular study, but only 19%, that is one out of five or slightly less than that, one out of five will read the Bible on a daily basis. According to Covenant Eyes, which is an organization that they provide a great software to help hold people accountable so that they don't go looking at pornography and other things that they shouldn't be looking at. According to Covenant Eyes, 64% of youth pastors and 57% of pastors struggle with pornography currently or in their past. Previous studies reveal that the numbers inside the pastorate are about the same as those in the pews, which just take an average estimate here. That means about 60% of the church is or has been viewing pornography, but less than 20% are in God's word on a regular basis. Do you see a problem? You see, what has happened is we have been filling our minds with things that we know are inappropriate, that God has called sexually immoral, yet we're expecting somehow to live sexually pure. We put ourselves in a bind where we're not going to be able to get out of it on our own. Earlier, I referenced a passage from Matthew 5, 27 through 28. In this passage, Jesus is speaking. Listen to what he says. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Let me simplify this for you. I have never heard of someone viewing pornography without lusting after someone. With that being said, there is no place for pornography in the life of a believer. Now, the argument has been made that pornography doesn't really hurt anybody, so it's no big deal. But that's not true either. Did you know that four out of five sex trafficking victims are women, most of whom are forced either into prostitution or pornography? That means that indirectly, when you support the sex industry, you are playing a role in sex trafficking. So it does hurt someone. This doesn't even take into consideration the many relationships that are devastated by unrealistic expectations and a constant sense of defeat as addiction dominates their lives. By the way, sexual addiction is a real thing. We talk about drug addiction as something that's real. Sex addiction is just as real. Something that the church has remained silent on too long. There is no room for pornography in the life of any believer. As a guy, perhaps the greatest tool for overcoming this temptation to minimize women in this manner has come from a passage in 1 Timothy chapter 5. As Paul writes, he identifies various relationships. He begins with older men telling us how to treat them and then how to treat younger men. And then in 1 Timothy 5 2, he moves to women. He says that we are to treat older women as mothers and younger women as sisters. And then he adds a phrase, with absolute purity. Well, to look at my sister in a sexual manner is gross to me. I mean that. 
for you to look at my sister in that way. I don't want to hear about it because I think that's gross. That's my sister. I love my sister, and I don't want you thinking inappropriately about her. Same thing is true about my daughter. I don't want anyone looking at my daughter in a sexual manner because that's my daughter, and I care too much about her. Well, you know what? It's hard for me to look at somebody in a sexual manner and consider my sister and still look at them in a sexual manner. Let me challenge you to examine how you see the people in your life. You see that young lady who's very attractive? You see that young lady who, man, your mind's beginning to wander just a little bit? Stop where you're at. Put your sister's face there. Put your daughter's face there. Put someone that you have such incredible respect and love for. Put their face there. It will change the way you look at that individual. There's no room for pornography because there's no room for adultery in the life of a a believer. I don't want to ignore the issue of homosexuality here either. I've heard people say that homosexuality isn't really an issue in the New Testament. God may call it an abomination in the Old Testament, but God is all about grace in the New Testament. My guess is they have not read 1 Corinthians chapter 6. It's sin, and God will not just sweep it under the carpet. Remember that earlier I shared with you that sex is to be between a husband and a wife. Homosexuality simply does not fit that formula. I've had some who have argued that it's just not fair. People are born that way, and others claim, well, it's a choice. I don't really care which corner you're in regarding this. I personally think both are actually correct. The scriptures clearly indicate that all of humanity is born into sin. It's the result of Adam's sin that we talked about earlier. That sin may manifest itself in different ways, but it's no doubt there we are born with a sinful nature. But choice always comes into play. If an individual is born with a bent toward drugs or alcohol, We teach them to overcome it. Don't be identified by that. I know your dad was, your grandfather was, but you don't have to do that. We teach them to be different, to change. If an individual is born with a short temper, we teach them to learn to control their anger. You don't have to walk the same path that others have walked. You can be different. You don't have to be enslaved by that. If an individual is born with homosexual tendencies, we are the ones who are expected to change, not them. Something is wrong with this system. It makes no sense. If I struggle with a sin in any form, the responsibility falls upon me to change, not the rest of you to change your understanding of my sin. So what is the verdict with all of this? Sex is a beautiful gift from God, but it must be done the way God designed it to be, within the confines of marriage between a husband and a wife. That means no pornography, no adultery, no homosexuality. You know, going back to our original passage, we find something that would be easy to mistakenly skip over, but it's actually really, really important. 
Paul makes a statement there in verse 11. He says, and that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. In other words, in the past, not the present. You don't have to continue in your sin. The things that identified you, the things that enslaved you in the past, they don't have to enslave you moving forward. You don't have to continue on this journey of sexual immorality. You don't have to continue to invite brokenness into your life. You can actually be transformed and be changed. You can be set free. That's where the grace comes into play that I mentioned earlier. Your sexual sin is not the unforgivable sin. And it doesn't have to be a part of your life moving forward. But it will if you're not intentional about change. And this leads to my last question today in your bulletin. What makes you different? Certainly a part of this is about choosing to be different. You remember the passage in 1 Thessalonians specifically identified the need for self-control. There must be a choice that is made. But it goes beyond that. The scriptures teach us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That means that even before we made the choice to leave our sin behind, God was already making a way for us to escape the clutches of our sin. That is amazing grace. But this selfless act, Jesus Christ dying for our sins, was made for all of humanity, which means all those people we come in contact with who are still dealing with the brokenness and the filth of sin. That means all of them were made to be redeemed. God has made a way for that to take place. But in order for that to happen, we must first respond to the gift that God has given in our passage, it tells us that we were washed, we were sanctified, we were justified. In other words, the filth of sin is washed away, never to be held against us again. It means that we are now set apart for something beautiful, something more wonderful and pure than we ever could have imagined. We are made right with our God. We're not the same people we were before. I want to share a testimony. I had a guy come to our church in Pennsylvania, and uh, I'll just tell you, actually, I, I can use his last name too, because he has shared openly in multiple settings. His name is Bill Pruitt, and uh, he was a counselor at a uh, Christian recovery facility. Many of you know Jonathan. He actually worked at the same facility that Jonathan went through as he was coming through drugs and alcohol. Uh, I had Bill come and share with the church, and Bill got there early, and he's hanging out with everybody. Kind of, you guys see me typically before service. I'll go and I'll, I'll try to shake as many hands as possible at some point just to kind of connect with everybody. Well, Bill was doing the same thing and he tried to shake hands with just about every person. So by the time he got up to speak, everybody in the room felt like they knew him already. So he gets up in the pulpit and he says, I want you to know that for many years I lived a homosexual lifestyle. You notice how it got real silent here? Well, that's what happened there. You got people who are rustling papers and all kinds of stuff, and everybody's just kind of uh, sort of halfway paying attention, sort of not. All of a sudden, everybody, it's like they just, what did he just say? 
And it kind of caught him by surprise that this guy would testify to the fact that he had lived in a homosexual lifestyle for many years. Bill went on to talk about how God had moved in his life and what happened was he began to realize that God had been with him all along, but there were things that Bill had allowed in his life that simply did not belong. God always loved him. God was always reaching out to him, but he just never would respond. And finally, he surrendered his life to Christ and God forgave him of the sinful choices that had existed. I want you to know today, Bill is now leading a ministry in Philadelphia where he is helping others come out of sexual addiction. Bill is married to a beautiful young lady that God has placed in his life. And he has found fulfillment not just in a marriage relationship or with a girl or a guy, but he has found fulfillment in his relationship with Jesus Christ. I've heard people say, well, you know, if if that's the way I am, I can't change who I am. And the only thing I'll tell you is that you can't change it, but God can. I know. I told you this is going to be viewed as hate speech. And some of you are sitting here thinking, well, you can't make them change. I can't make anybody change. But I'm telling you that God has clearly defined in this passage that those who practice homosexuality will not inherit the kingdom of God. You can argue with me about whether it's possible to change or not, but the point is, the scriptures very clearly tell us that there are consequences to our actions. Now, one of the things we struggle with sometimes is we will elevate one sin over another. We'll look at homosexuality as being much worse than the act of adultery, but it's still sexual immorality. It's not as if one is bigger than the other. It's sin. And they're all included here together. So for us to say, well, those people are terrible for what they're doing, you're right, but so are we. If we are allowing sin in our lives, it still carries consequences. You say, but I'm under the grace of Jesus Christ. Yeah, then act like it. Live like one who is under the grace of Jesus Christ. This is a hard message because it's something we just don't talk about. But I will tell you, as God's word is very clear, that if we persist in relationships that dishonor God, and the ones we've looked at today do, then there are consequences. God's punishment, according to 1 Thessalonians, not inheriting the kingdom of God, according to 1 Corinthians. So make sure that your lifestyle choices reflect the grace that you have received. I ask you if you would to bow your heads and close your eyes with me. Father, as we come before you, we know that this is a difficult topic because we're talking about things that the world has very different views on. But when it comes down to it, Lord, we don't want to know what the world says. We want to know what you say. And according to your word, there are consequences for sin choices. So we pray right now that you would help us to become obedient, to follow your law, to become more like you. We don't want to become legalistic so that we're only concerned about keeping our list of do's and don'ts, but we also understand that you do care about the choices that we make. You don't want to see us enslaved by sin. You want to see us set free. You want to see us become all that you would have us be. So, Lord, I pray that you would transform us so that we would do that. Or where there is a tendency for us to move toward these sins. 
whether it be in a homosexual manner, a heterosexual manner, whether it be looking at pornography, Lord, I pray that you would be the one who would satisfy us fully. Help us not to find satisfaction in these things that would dishonor your name. Lord, I pray that you'd be with the one who perhaps is in a marital relationship right now, but they are considering being unfaithful outside of that relationship. Lord, I pray that you would speak to their hearts even now. Allow them to avoid the heartache and the pain that comes with that. Lord, I pray that you would be with the young couples who right now are curious. They're doing things that maybe they haven't done before. Lord, I pray that you would cause them more than anything to find satisfaction in you and not that girl or that guy. Lord, I pray that you would make us holy and pure. May you be honored in us, in the way we live our lives. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Now, this is what I need you to do. I need you to not leave here and tell everybody that Pastor Mike hates people who are in homosexuality or those who are in adultery. That's not what I said today. This is 100% about the love and the grace of Jesus Christ. He is not content leaving us in our sin. But he has made a way for us to step out of that sin and to honor him in the way we live our lives. That's what this is about today. I do thank each of you for being with us today. If you would come back next week, and I promise I'll talk about something a little less controversial. Uh, Thank you for being with us. Go in peace.